Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Today is a, a lead-in. I'm um, Calvin is, um, and it's not just because of Calvinism, but Calvin is, is for me personally, is the most important uh, theologian, you know, you know, obviously not counting Paul and, you know, anybody in Scripture. But after Scripture, even among the church fathers, Calvin is, has been most important in my life, not just because of Calvinism or sovereignty of God, but even his commentaries, and I'll mention that later. It's, um, he was a remarkable, uh, remarkable theologian. Um, but rightly or wrongly, Calvin is... Uh, chiefly identified as the foremost proponent of predestination. And it's because of quotes like this that, that stir people up. But he's not wrong. And that's, you know, that's the thing. And I talked about this, this notion of double predestination last year. But when you read a, a quote like this, you, most people can handle the first couple phrases. But then when they think, well, wait a second then that means other people are, you know, ordained to go to hell. And it's like, wow, that's hard. That's a hard truth, right? And so people, uh, people want to say that God is sovereign, but they don't want to really think it through and, and think of what that really means. Because if you have a set of people, and I could use a Venn, well, there's a marker here. If you... Um, have a Venn diagram, and this is all the people in the world, right, in this circle, and then these are the people that are, say, chosen for eternal life, we'll just put EL, right? If you're not in this circle, then, then you can't, if, if you're chosen and you're in this circle, you can't get from here to here or vice versa, right? You're in one or the other, and it's a, it's a, um, it's a sobering truth, right? Um, but Calvin is um, uh, known for predestination, it's a, uh, but I think it's not how he should be chiefly seen. Um, but it's an important doctrine, and this doctrine sees God as sovereign, and the reason it changed my life is that knowing that God is in control, then I give him all the glory, then I appreciate that he, he is, you know, I can't mess it up. Um, you know, Calvin also says, and this is a good, a good quote, that we really won't fully understand who God is and our position as Christians, our position uh, until we understand that, that God is in control, that God is responsible. And it's why I mentioned last week, it's why we pray. We pray that God will save someone. Right? We pray that God will do it because he does it. Right? Um, you know, it, scripture is clear on this. And again, I taught this last year uh, in my module, but I'm reminded of John 1 uh, where uh, the apostle says, We become children of God. We're born uh, not of blood or of the will of the Father. In other words, we're not born again because I chose to be born again. That's what scripture says. Rather, we're born of, uh, by, by God's power. That's what Scripture says. 
but I suppose it doesn't, hurt, doesn't help that the term Calvinist has become synonymous with predestination and a high view of God's sovereignty. I was having a conversation with, with Greg Moore last Sunday after church about this, how I'm not really comfortable calling myself a Calvinist, but I don't know what word to use. Because if I, I remember Tom Wessenberg, who used to come to Christ, used to go to Christ to Word, he used to say that he was a biblicist. But the problem with that is that's sort of an arrogant because everyone thinks they're a biblicist, right? Everyone thinks that they follow the Bible. So what exactly does that mean to say you're a biblicist? And when Tim Varner was teaching, I used to say that I, I just say I have a high view of God's sovereignty. Um, but um, uh, interesting, uh, Calvin detested the word Calvinism. In fact, um, he said they could do they could attach us no greater insult than this word Calvinism. It is not hard to guess where such a deadly hatred comes from they that hold against me. He thought it was his enemies that started using the term. You know, that, that they were like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like, the, these people hate me so much, they're going to call, call this Calvinism. You know, and, and you, it makes sense. You know, I've been doing my uh, devotion in 1 Corinthians, and at the beginning, uh, Paul is saying, look, you know, it's not me, it's not Apollos, it's Jesus, right? So, so Calvin knew 1 Corinthians, right? He, he doesn't want you to say it's Calvin. It, it's, it's a, you're a Lutheran. You're a Calvinist, you know, you're, right? You're a Jesus person, right? So, um, um, but I think, um, you know, Spurgeon had a pretty, what, I, what we say these days, a pretty hot take, you know, on Calvinism. And I'm, it's a long one, but he says... Um, there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless you preach what nowadays, nurses in the 1800s, is called Calvinism. I have my own ideas, and those I always state boldly. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvin is the gospel and nothing else. And this is coming from a Baptist, by the way. And so I, I, I think it's a great quote. Um, it's something, uh, it's just a nickname, right? I, I'm with Spurgeon on this. If it helps people uh, say, look, you have a high view of God's sovereignty, you believe God's sovereign, uh, if that's what it does, great. But, um, but predestination is not um, what he should be noted for. And so uh, Benjamin Warfield, who is probably one of the greatest uh, experts on John Calvin ever, a, a Princeton professor from uh, 1800s, um, he said, look, Augustine taught it, you know, predestination and sovereignty of God. He taught it a thousand years before. Luther did. Luther was before Calvin. I mean, they're, they overlap at the, you know, at early in Calvin, later in Luther, they overlap, but they never met. Um, uh, so, Calvinism, or what we think of as Calvinism, isn't really unique to Calvin. You could say you're Augustinian, you know, or Lutheran, or something. What Calvin is known for, though, this is the rest of the quote, what's special is his emphasis on the Holy Spirit, because that's what makes Calvin special, and people, a lot of people don't know that. Um, Christ benefits us by the, the working of the Holy Spirit. That's what, what Calvin 
would say. Um, I've always, I don't know if I, I tell this story a lot because it's, it's so, um, when Jesus told his disciples that it's good that I leave, what do you think their reaction was? We already know Peter, what Peter did, right? He said, no, Lord, right? And, and he says, it's better if I leave. And I'm like, I'm thinking, if I was one of the disciples, I'm saying, Jesus, no, it's not. We like having you here. You make food. You calm the sea. You heal people. My mom got sick. You healed her. That was Peter, right? And I'm like, well, how is it better if you leave? How? And he said, because I'm going to send the helper. And look what happened to them. When Jesus was there and he was crucified, they cowered, right? And then Jesus came back. They realized what he said was true, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were changed men. And they were willing to give their lives, right? It's, it's, it's amazing that, the, that it was better, because Jesus didn't lie, right? He's saying, it's better if I leave. Now, there are other things, too, that it's not just the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, then they would go forth. It was better that he leave, not just for, maybe for their own benefit, you could argue that it wasn't, but maybe for the world, it was better that he go. It was better that he save us from our sins. It was better that these men would be sent out and preach the gospel to all men. So, I think there's more to it than just that one thing. But the key part of it was, he said, Jesus' words, because I'm going to send you the helper. Very important. And, and so the, the Holy Spirit is, um, what we're doing as far as knowing God, we can't escape the fact that God is doing this. goes back to the sovereignty thing, but God is, is working in us. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. He says it in chapter 6 of Romans. He says it in chapter 8. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit does all these things. And it will, the Spirit, we pray to God that, this, God, uh, that you give me eyes to see. And I want to know you. That should be, as I mentioned last week, that should be our, our goal, right? Um, so... I mentioned that Calvin, I, I, this isn't on my slide, but just as a side note. Um, so I talked about Calvinism and Arminianism last year. So our, uh, Jake, uh, Jacobus Arminius, who lived after Calvin, his followers present, uh, came up with these arguments against Calvinism, and it was, um, they called it a remonstrance. It was a Dutch remonstrance, and so they had these five points. And what I think is interesting is that the response to those five points by followers of Calvin became the five points of Calvinism, but it's not really the original document. It's a response to the original document, right? But um, I mention this because Arminius, um, even though he was opposed to Calvin's doctrine on predestination, consider what he had to say about Calvin. After the Holy Scriptures, I exhort the students, him being a teacher, to read the commentaries of Calvin. I tell them that he is incomparable in the interpretation of Scripture and that his commentaries ought to be held 
in greater estimation than all of that is delivered to us in the writings of the ancient Christian fathers. So that in a certain eminent spirit of prophecy, I give the preeminence to him beyond, beyond most others, indeed beyond them all. So isn't that remarkable? Arminius said that about Calvin. Said his, that his commentary, if I had to like, I have, when I became a Christian over time, you know, I started getting commentaries and books. And if I had to pick, I have, I had lots of commentaries before I had Calvin. And now if I had to throw everything away, I'd ask, can I please keep Calvin's commentaries? He's, he, he didn't get, manage to get, and I, I wonder if that's part of the reason that made him great. Because Luther, even Luther and Augustine, if there's a Mount Rushmore, it would be, in my view, Augustine or Augustine, both are correct, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, I'm not sure who the fourth one is. Maybe Aquinas, not Still, sure. What's that? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. I don't know, that's a hard one to pick the four. But, but Augustine and Luther didn't, do, uh, didn't have the commentaries that, I mean, Luther had one on Romans, but Calvin did almost every book. And I think that's part of what made him great. He really knew the Bible. I mean, he worked re tirelessly. And I can't believe that he did most of his work in like 25 years. It's just incredible. Absolutely incredible. His, um, what he's most famous for is not his commentaries. Um, so he did something that Luther and Augustine didn't do. Not only did he write amazing commentaries, which I value more than his institutes, by the way. But this book is one of the most important books in Christendom. And it's not just me saying it. In fact, even I, I was researching, even on a list of top 100 books ever written, including secular, this was in the list. That was in the 90s, but I mean, it's in the list. It's an important book because he said, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Some people think that capitalism is uh, uh, partly uh, owes a debt to Calvin's Institutes because of how, um, because of his view of God's sovereignty and, what, and the implications, giving all, whether you do music, art, whatever, do it to the glory of God. Incredibly, his first edition, he wrote his first edition in his late 20s. And he hadn't even been a Christian for but a few years. Unbelievable. And he wrote this down as like, because he had to flee France because, uh, you know, they were going to kill him. And, um, and he, he thought, well, there's some people that really need to know some basics. Like, this is basics, but wow. Um, it's originally four books. Most times if you see it in print, it's going to be two volumes, but it's really four books. Um, and so there's, um, there's books, and then there's chapters, and then there are paragraphs. And so whenever you see Calvin's um, Institutes quoted, it's usually three numbers, like book one, chapter one, um, paragraph one. Well, um, this, um, David even quoted this when he was talking in, in the big thing, and, and I can't, you can't even do what, what I'm doing without quoting this. This is sort of like uh, required, right? Um, it's a very famous first sentence, first chapter, first book, first paragraph. This is the opening, his opening words, not, not counting preface and things like that. Nearly all the wisdom we possess 
consists of two parts. And I've been saying it for years. The Bible tells us chiefly two things. It tells us about God and it tells us about ourselves. And that's what Calvin is saying here. But he has another follow-up, which is now in second paragraph, same chapter. He said, it, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless essentially he knows God. And that, and that is the disconnect, right, between the, the Christian and, and the secular humanist, right? That is going to be the disconnect. Because we understand that we can't know ourselves unless we know God. And they would say they know themselves without knowing God. We think they know themselves improperly. Their, their lens is messed up. And in fact, if they're wrong and God does exist, then they really did screw up, right? They didn't see themselves the right way. Um, so, um, but to know God, Calvin would say, requires the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Calvin taught that while the whole, uh, while man has innate knowledge of, of man, so Paul says we're without excuse back in Romans 1 that I talked about last week, and therefore, has, um, therefore he has no excuse. Calvin suggested that that, that that knowledge fails of its proper effects because of our sin. In other words, they understand that God exists. Everybody does, but because of sin, it does cloud our vision of who God is. And so a key point for Calvin was that in order for people to have any real knowledge of God, God has to choose to reveal himself to me, to, to you or, and me. You know, I, um, we know God not when we merely understand that there is a God, because we think everybody does that, or most people, but when we understand what it is right for us to understand about him, what is conducive to his glory. Um, Got to get back on track here. Um, let's just go, I'm going to jump ahead here. Another, another good quote, you know, kind of advertising, right, for what we are engaging in here. Um, knowing God is the greatest thing, really. I mean, can you, if you are, have a personal pursuit and you want to be the best, let's say, at your craft. It's a noble endeavor, right? If you have a hobby, for example, you want to be, you know, I'm in a small group with Pete Rethorn, and he's really good at building models. And if you've seen some of his models, I mean, they look like the real thing, only a lot smaller. And he's very good at it. There is no more noble pursuit, though, than to know God. And so, and again, I'm not picking on Pete or any of us. We all have our hobbies. Um, but when we think about what will, what will benefit us most and the people we know, right, won't it be a, a great knowledge of God? I mean, we're certainly not going to say, well, God, I was really good at building models. Aren't you impressed? You know, right? What, what will benefit us the most? And it goes back to that, you know, that McShane quote. I'll probably, I, I can't get away from that quote when he says, you know, 
my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. And you could change that quote and say, my people's greatest needs, my children, my wife, my students, my neighbors, my coworkers, their greatest need is my knowing God. My having, me having a good relationship with God and being able to exhibit that, right? To, to walk in Christ. That's what they need the most. But it is possible to have great knowledge of God without truly knowing them. For example, a person might um, know a lot about politics, might be an expert, might be their hobby, right? Like maybe you're even a history teacher and you know a lot about you know, the White House and the workings of, of the different you know, houses and you know, all that stuff, right? You're an expert on presidential politics. But does that mean you know him? And yet the president's gardener might know almost nothing about the president, you know, presidential stuff, history, the Constitution, but he and the president, you know, talk in his morning walks. And you could, he could probably say, I know the president. I talk to him all the time. I know him. So having knowledge of God isn't the same as actually knowing him. We could go even further. You can say you go to Bible studies. You could read about Christian theology. You could even participate in discussions of biblical truth and hardly know God at all. If you pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it will likely lead to pride. And I'm afraid that there's many of us, myself included, who probably found um, security in knowledge. Because I'd say, Raul, Randy, you're pretty smart. You, you know, you, you preach and you teach, and that doesn't make me close to God, that in and of itself. It's, not, it's a good thing, right, to, to do that study and everything, but, but knowledge alone isn't enough, right? The, the Pharisees, I mean, all we have to do is look to Jesus' words, right? The Pharisees had more knowledge than everybody. Everybody around them, they knew the scriptures. When Jesus quoted the scriptures, they, it wasn't like they, they said, oh, I didn't know that verse, right? They knew. And what did Jesus say about them? You don't know me. You don't know me. So, I mean, we can even know a great deal about godliness. I thought, you know, I came across this. You can even speak in tongues or even be the person who can explain away why you can't speak in tongues, right? And you can be either person. And the reality is it's not enough. Um, we know Jesus' words, and it seems to me that Jesus is saying, because knowing God also involves being known by him, right? Because it's a transactional relationship. And so it's not enough to say that you know God. God needs to know you. And so my impression from Jesus' comment here, when he says, hey, I never knew you, is that there are people walking around who think they know God and don't. Right? They're playing the game. Maybe they're going to church, maybe they're tithing, maybe they're going to Bible studies, but is it really changing their life? Are they being compelled to pursue personal holiness? Is God, is, 
And that's something that, that strikes me. When you meet someone who says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Is Jesus changing your life? Are you different now than you were a year ago, 10 years ago, whatever? Is Jesus changing you? Is the Holy Spirit making you different? And if you're the same dude you always were for the last 5, 10, whatever years, and you say you know Christ, I'm like, what? God should be changing you. Am I, am I right? I see some heads. Am I right? And if, and if God's not changing you, then what's going on? What's going on? All right, I'm preaching now, but that's all right. I'm not going to apologize for that, if I'm, as long as I'm telling the truth. Um, but God is knowable. While God reveals himself in a general way and in a specific way in the, in the scriptures, both old and new, um, knowing God is possible because God is personal and he chooses to have fellowship with us. You know, I suppose God, if he wanted to, could choose not to. I'm just going to be up here and I'm going to do what I want. But he doesn't. If you recall back, uh, way back in September, the first words in Hebrews, right? Long ago and many times. And what's really great for us, we're very fortunate. We might be 2,000 years removed, but we're still very fortunate because we have something that all the people before Jesus didn't have. And, and we, we, see, we see more clin- clearly. They, have, they, they had a dim lens. We don't. Um, we're especially blessed to live in an age, as Calvin says, it's, God has appointed his son to be an ambassador to us. But to know God more fully, we needed him, for him to tell us who he is. Um, Paul, in his sermon in Athens, uh, to the people of Athens, explained how God made the heavens and the earth, how he made the nations from one man, he marked out the appointed times in history, and he explained that God is both transcendent and, as we mentioned last week, uh, imminent. And why, would, why did he do this? And Paul's conclusion was he did this so that they would seek him, so that we would know God, right? I mean, it makes sense. He says why it's important. This is a, this is a remarkable statement right here. Doesn't that say a lot about who God is? And if this is the guy, and this is what I was trying to explain last week, if that's the guy that you know, exists, then don't you want to find out what he expects of us? Wouldn't that be a, a, a smart question? Um, the opening question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is well known. But if we're supposed to enjoy God, don't you have to know him? Seems like you have to know him. I think that seems to be a, a prerequisite. And in fact, it says, if, if we believe this to be true, I mean, it's not scripture. It's supposed to be a reflection of what scripture teaches. What, you all know what word glorify means. You, what does it mean? What's word glorify mean? Everybody, come on. To make known. You all learned that in Sunday school, haven't you? How many of you have heard that before? Come on, you guys are killing me. That's like only Matt. 
What? Good thing you raised your hand. All right. <laughs> it means to make known. How are you going to make somebody known if you don't know them? <laughs> That's what glorify means. It means when you're praising, especially corporately, you're saying hallelujah. And you're saying, this guy is amazing. I do it with my wife all the time. I glorify my wife all the time. I do. I'm a lucky man. My wife's amazing. She's smart. She's beautiful. I mean, she's good at everything. I mean, if you know my daughters, you know it's because of her. Right? And Hannah and Rebecca are amazing. I, I think I'm blessed. I have two great daughters. And, and so I, I have no problem glorifying my wife. But, but the thing is, if I'm going to, how much more should I glorify God? My wife's nothing in, in that light, right? So that's what glorify, but if we're going to glorify him, if we're going to make him known, then like, like who are you to say, Randy, who God is? You don't even know the guy. And if that was true, then I couldn't, right? I couldn't properly glorify him if I don't know him. If I don't know the guy, how am I going to make him known? But I know my wife really well. And that's why it's easy to glorify her. If we know God really well, like Athanasius, I said last week, to know Jesus is to love him. I know it sounds like a song from Jesus Christ Superstar or something. I think there might be a song in there. But it's true, though, right? If you know Christ, how can you not love him? Look what he did for us. Look what he was willing to do. Um, I forgot half of you have no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) <laughs> there was a musical a long time ago, like in the 70s, called Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay, before most of you were born. Okay, all right. Um, so, uh, about 50 years ago, uh, Dr. Packer wrote um, this book, which is probably, I would argue that it's one, maybe one of the most important books in modern evangelicalism. By modern evangelicalism, I mean since, say, the 60s. Um, so in the last, let's say, let's just say in the last 50, 60 years, this is certainly one of the most important books out there. Um, he said, our pur- he said what, what scripture says. He says, our purpose in life is to know God. God himself desires that we would know him. And I think the book could have been even better written, frankly. Um, but it's really solid. He doesn't say anything wrong, okay? It's all good. And he says, the best thing in life, which brings more joy, I'm paraphrasing, it's not a quote, more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else is a true and saving knowledge of God. And the reason, it's almost like obvious that this book should be, if it was well written, and it is, I just said I think it could be a little better. Um, but the reason that this book should be good is if he's true to the, to the title, then I dare you to come up with a better book to write about, a better thing to write about, right? I mean, it's got to be, you know, right up there. So just the title alone, you know, says, well, if he's doing a good job of talking about knowing God, then this must be a good book. And it is. It is a good book. Um, He asked, um, and so he says, or what I say is, well, knowing about God is easy, right? What's the hard part? Actually knowing God, right? And so that's, 
this is what I think is maybe the most critical question in the whole book, and it's what we want to answer. We want to answer this question right here. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? And so that's what I'm going to spend really uh, next week, the following, uh, talking about this. I have um, some philosophy that I'm going to uh, deal with. I hope that word doesn't you know, make it turn you off. I'm going to talk about uh, epistemology a little bit. Um, and I, I considered not talking about it, but I still think it's somewhat interesting, and I like philosophy, so you're going to have to bear with me. Um, it's the study of knowledge. Philosophers, they, they like to know lots of stuff. And one of the things they want to know, well, how do we know stuff? And so um, we often contrast knowing something with, that, with belief, knowledge with belief. Um, knowing something is true differs from just thinking that it's true. And so traditional definition of knowledge, um, going back to Plato, and although some dude in the 60s wrote a paper that, that says there's maybe some counterexamples, but I think it's named Gettier, and I, I think it's not. Philosophy, philosophers love to argue, and they argue about stuff for like centuries and centuries. And, but, for, but for millennia, this has been really what we think uh, knowledge is. Uh, justified true belief. In other words, you have, you have evidence for it. You have, it's true. For example, I can't believe that Toledo is the capital of Ohio if it's not, I may believe it, but if it's not true, then it's a false belief. Does that make sense? Um, or you can believe something, you know, but not have evidence. And it's like, um, you, you can, you can like be in denial, right? Um, so you have to have uh, what I think I have it in my notes. Uh, they call this uh, a propositional attitude of you have to actually believe it. You can't like refuse to believe it. This would be, that'd be um, true belief, uh, justified belief in, in something, uh, let's see. This would be like someone shows you the evidence and then they, they say, uh, oh, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, anyway, I, I, I see the clock and I'm like thinking, okay, I still have more stuff to talk about, so I'm going to keep going. Um, having justified true belief about the gospel is difficult because the empiricist wants to have solid evidence. And it just so happens that God has given us an economy of faith. So Jesus says, blessed are they who did not see. So the economy that God has set up is one of faith. He wants us to believe. Now, the question is, can we have um, justified true belief about God? And I think it's difficult, but I think we can have reasonable justified true belief. And so I'll, I'll state my case. The justification, I think, part of it is easy. We have evidence. We have, John says in chapter 20, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you may have life in his name. So we have the, the testimony of the prophets. We see Jesus working in our, God working in our lives. Now people might say, well, how do you know that's God? We don't, but we, we make connections. Everybody does, right? That's how, oh, this person loves me. How do you know? How do you know? Well, they do stuff for me, right? 
So there, we have evidence. So that's the easy part. The truth is the hardest part. Um, well, we probably don't have empirical evidence that God exists. But guess what? The atheist doesn't either. They don't have evidence. They don't have truth on their side either. Because they don't know. In fact, I think we have more evidence than they do. We know, we know, as I mentioned last week, that matter cannot be created or destroyed. All right, where did it come from? I got an answer. You don't. Their answer is, oh, well, it always was. How do you know? They don't. So don't let them get away with it. Don't they, you know, uh, we have just as much truth, if not more, than they do. Um, that's why Paul suggests that there's, um, um, and I mentioned this last week, there's a sense of deity in our heart. Everybody, um, where, did, um, where did morality come from? If there's no, if there's no God, and everything, and everything is just random, well, where did morality come from? Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Even a small child, even though they're selfish, they know when they hit somebody and make them cry, they know, they feel bad about it, maybe only for a second, but they know when they steal, they know. They may overcome it and say, it doesn't matter, I don't care if it's bad, I, I want it, right? So they know, there's a sense, where does that come from? We're made in the image of God. We have an answer, they don't. So I admit, truth is a tough one, but, um, you know, the, our knowledge of God stems from a biblical worldview. This is what we believe. This is not in your notes. It's something I added on Thursday. In more research, I wasn't happy with this section, so I was just doing some more research. And I, I liked it. I think, I, I think this is reasonable. Um, I don't know if it's life-changing or anything, because um, it's just a lot of stuff. But I, I think... I agree that this is trying to give a, a reason for why God's knowledge is innate, that we have, that it's, it's, it's um, not unique, it's in all of us to some degree. Um, but I think the burden of proof is on the atheist, not us. And that's, that's what I think. So I, I have a propositional attitude of belief, to, to use philosophical language. Um, to say that I don't believe would go against my conscience. Do you understand this? Because every once in a while I get discouraged. I got discouraged when Bob and Chad died. And so I could say, well, well maybe my prayers weren't worth anything. I could get, have some doubt. But you know what? At the end of the day, I can't do it. Even if I get disappointed now and then, I can't do it. To, to say that I don't believe would go against my conscience. I just can't do it. I think God's made it plain to me. And if he hasn't made it plain to you, ask him to open your eyes. Because I tell you, when I sat in the front seat of my little car in UT campus, my prayer when I accepted Christ, you know, and just said some kind of prayer, say, Jesus, come into my heart, I said, God, show me that this is real. Because I'm not sure if I believe. I'm saying it right now, in this moment, but I need you to show me because 
I want to be convinced. I'm a pretty analytical guy. And he's shown me. He's shown me. And so I, I have this, you know, this propositional attitude of belief. Um, so our study uh, of knowledge leads us to whether we can know God. And looking at the clock means I have to really fly here. I might have to re record this again next session. I'm recording it new because I made some changes and now I'm not going fast enough. Um, no matter what science says, we have to be pragmatic. We've got this um, before us. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm editing on the fly here. So epistemology is usually, um, is usually about concern with knowing stuff. Okay, what is something, right? But how do we transfer that to knowing a person? And, and so, because like I can know facts, I can know stuff, but can I, what constitutes knowing a person? So, because I can know how to tie a bow tie, but um, how do I know, a, know someone? And we know that knowing someone isn't just uh, knowing in a biblical sense isn't just knowing a certain set of propositions about that person, right? What does James say? Even the, even the demons believe that certain things about God and they tremble. Why do they tremble? Because they, they don't know him. They're going to go ahead and do their own thing. They've rebelled. And they've said, well, we're in this boat. We're going to row it. Right? Um, so, but, um, but even secular Philosophers understand that knowing a person presupposes a relationship, right? And it has to be current. Like when someone dies, you don't say, I know him. No, you say, I knew him, right? You knew him. I have an old friend I haven't seen in a long time. In fact, I haven't seen him for like at least 10 years, and I've only seen him once in the last 30. He moved far away, and it's just how it happens when you're young, and it happens, right? I can't say, even though he's my best friend in high school, that was 50 years ago or 40-some years ago. So it's like, I can't say I know Tom anymore. I don't know what he's doing, right? I don't know him, even though I, we were best buds. And so it does seem to, to suggest, we think about it, you know, we need an ongoing, active, current relationship. And if you, if you get to a certain point, you can't stop and say, okay, I know him. Right? So, um, while knowing facts about a person is helpful, it's not the basis for knowing. Understanding the substance of a right relationship guides us to knowing God. And I mentioned last week how I'm not really crazy about the personal relationship with God, phrase because it's used so much and people, non-believers, don't know what it means, but it's true. It's still a good term even if it's misused, just like evangelicalism means almost nothing anymore, right? You ask, you, you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different definitions, and that's a problem because I know if I ask 10 different people what Sunday is, they all can tell me that it's the seventh day or the first day, but at least we can agree it's somewhere in the calendar we can learn some things about it, right? Evangelicalism, I have no idea what that word means anymore, at least not in our culture. So, uh, 
And what I want to tell you this morning as I wrap up is that our epistemology, um, that is our study of knowledge, knowing God, it's, um, it has ethical implications. What I mean is, if you know certain stuff, then you ought to do it, right? Just like if you know a crime's about to be committed, you might feel like a moral obligation to alert somebody and say, hey, something bad's about to happen, you better stop it or we better stop it. You understand what I mean about you, uh, ethical implications, right? So if we know God, what are we supposed to do with that, right? And so um, you know, Paul's greatest, you know, the Bible says, you know, this is an ethical responsibility, right? Would you agree? Absolutely. Choose this day whom you shall serve, right? Jesus' words. You've got to decide. Repent and believe or do the other and suffer the consequences, right? And so that, that was Paul's greatest desire. And I know I'm really rolling here, but he says, more than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing not value, the value of knowing Christ. And by the way, he's saying this as a saved man. This is not pre-conversion musings. He is saying, look, even now, this is what I value, knowing Christ. And um, I was going to tell you it's 10.01, 10.02, and so I was going to tell you some stuff about uh, the Greek word for, for uh, walking around, okay? But the idea is walking in Christ. If we know Christ, it seems to me as a looking for words in Scripture, what would be the the kind of like a synonym or a, or a lead or a what what could I transition from knowing and having that ethical responsibility and that ethical responsibility is walking and so it's walking in Christ so have you as you as you know Christ walk in him that's the practical application here I mean to, next week we're going to talk about how to know Christ but I wanted to, to leave with you you know Every, you know, and I, I went through the scriptures, all the apostles saying the same thing. Walk in Christ, right? So you may follow in his steps. You ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. That's the ethical implication, right? That we walk in Christ. So um, I would ask you, what, what evidence could you point to if someone said, well, how do you know Christ? How do you know God? Do you have evidence? What would you say? Next week we're going to talk about how to know God. Um, here's a good verse in Isaiah that I'll leave you with. Has reminded me of Mandalorian. This is the way. This is the way. Walk in it. Okay? It's the way. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.